Would you turn in your Bible to John 17, John 17 and verse 20 is where we will uh, read today. I'm only doing four verses today. John 17 and verse 20. I will tell you that uh, as a pastor, as a Christian, as a member of our church, one of the things that, that encourages me most is when I hear from people, uh, Brother James, Pastor, we are praying for you. I went and preached at a conference this last week, and a lot of people said, we're praying for you, preacher. And really, seriously, I appreciated that, and it encouraged me. Is there much more encouragement that you can receive than finding out that somebody is praying for you? Isn't that nice to have someone praying for you? I I really think that uh, having someone pray over you out loud is even a greater blessing. And I know many of us get a little nervous about that, uh, praying out loud, having people pray over us. But not only is someone praying for you, but you hear what it is that they are taking to God on your behalf. What a great encouragement that is for someone to pray for you. Uh, At the end of our service, we have an opportunity to allow people to pray over you because that is an encouragement. We'll have some ministers and deacons and their wives and some other leaders here, and people can come and be prayed over for whatever, and uh, that's a great opportunity to encourage you. Now, imagine for a moment that you are at the end of our service, you've got an invitation, you're gonna, you need some prayer about something, you start walking down the aisle, and at the head of your aisle, the spiritual leader that is there that's gonna pray for you and pray over you is none other than Jesus himself. Pull. Part of me would wanna go have him pray for me. The other part would wanna turn around and go the other way, right? Uh, but you have Jesus there. And what would Jesus say when he, if he was praying for you? Wouldn't that be an amazing thought? What, when he prays for you, what would he pray for? Well, you don't have to ask that question because the Bible tells us exactly what he would pray for you. And we find it in this passage today, John 17, verse 20. If you're there, say amen. Amen. Let me read verse 20 to kind of set up the rest of the passage. Verse 20. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. Now, this prayer specifically in verse 20 and through verse 26 He is switching gears. It's in the context of a larger prayer. He starts off praying for himself in the first few verses of this chapter. And then he turns his attention to those who have believed in him and have trusted in him and are following him at the time of this prayer. So that would have been the 11 apostles. You got Judas is gone at this point. That would have been the other followers and disciples that he had at this time. He was praying for them. And then he switches gears. And in verse 20, he says, I pray not only for these, referring to those he had just prayed for, but I'm also praying for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, this has some things in it intrinsically. There is an expectation that the these, his current disciples, are going to share the word of the gospel with people who are not currently disciples. 
There's an expectation that once you have heard the good news, you have accepted the good news. There's an expectation for the believers of Jesus' day and you and me that we will not just hold on to that good news, but that we will share it with others. So in that, no doubt they heard, "Uh uh-oh, we're supposed to share this. But it says, any of those who believe the message of the apostles. What was that message? Well, it was the message that Jesus had given them. It was the gospel message, the message of good news, that even though you're a sinner, Jesus died for you as a gift, and you can receive this gift by giving your life to Jesus. Sins will be forgiven, and you can be saved. That was the message that they were to communicate. Now, Who was it that the apostles spoke to? Well, these lost people who now believe. And where do we find the words of the apostles today? Any ideas where we can find the message and the word of the apostles today? Any idea? Help me out. In God's word. When you study the New Testament, you are studying the word of God as it is proclaimed and spoken through the early church apostles. And so you are receiving that word. And if you have believed in Jesus since Jesus left, which I'm pretty sure if you've trusted in Jesus and you're in this room, you are included in this group for whom he is praying. He is praying specifically for you. And what did he pray for? Did he pray that we'd all be wealthy? Did he pray we'd all be healthy? Did he pray that we would have fill in the blank? What does he pray for? That's what we're going to look at. Let's look. Verse 21. Here is his prayer for you. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. He prays. For his followers' future unity. And in this, there are three things in this prayer that he gives us that unifies us. The first is he gives us a calling that unifies. A calling that unifies. He says there in verse 21, May they all be one. May they all be unified. Now, what exactly does that mean? Uh, does that mean that when you get saved that you are just in physical, we all become one physical thing? No, look at all of us. We're all different. There's a whole bunch of us out there. He is talking figuratively about the unity that exists in the fellowship and in uh, the church. And he defines it in the next phrase where he says, I want them to be as one, be one as you, the Father, are in me and I am in you. Relationally, the Father and the Son were unified. They were unified in essence. They were unified in heartbeat, what made them tick. They were unified in their mission. Both had the purpose of of reconciling a lost world to God through Jesus Christ. They were unified, lockstep, and in the same way that the Father and the Son were so unified that you could not tell the difference between the two, that's how the church needs to be unified today. That is a calling from heaven and expectation from God that we're unified. The Apostle Paul wrote many of the books in the New Testament, and throughout his writing, uh, he writes about and uses a metaphor that talks about this unity. The metaphor that he uses is the metaphor of a body, the body of Christ. And in 1 Corinthians, and again in Ephesians, and we're going to read some of these passages later, he talks about the body as being a multitude of body parts, 
but all one body. So if I touch my finger, I'm touching my body. If I touch my ear, I'm touching my body. If I touch my head, I'm touching my my body. If I touch my nose, I'm touching my body. All of those are parts, and the word is member. That's where we get our idea of church membership. They're all members of one body. It goes so far to say that when one member hurts, the whole body hurts. So there's an idea that even though we are all individuals and we're all different, we are all unified in a body. And so he expects us to maintain that fellowship and maintain that unity with one another. Listen to how Paul writes this in the book of Philippians chapter 2. And listen to all the things that unite us and the purpose for which we are united. Chapter 2 and verse 1. If then, and the way this is written, it's not if then with an idea that it might not be. It's if then, and this is true, if then, and it is, there is any encouragement in Christ If any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Adopt this same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. We have here an expectation uh, that we are to think the same way and have the same love, be united in spirit, intent on the same purpose, And all of that is shown in love and in humility because we want to maintain that unity. They tell me those redwood trees that you find in California out in the west, they grow to be hundreds of feet tall. How many of you have seen a tree in South Louisiana upended by a hurricane? Have y'all seen that before? And when it's upended, it doesn't just snap, right? A lot of times what it'll do is it'll bring the root system up. And when you look at a lot of trees, the root system of that tree is just as tall and, and as large as the tree itself. Underground is just as large as what's above ground. But that's not true with the redwoods. They'll be two or 300 feet tall, but their root system doesn't go two or 300 feet down. In fact, their root system is very shallow. Well, how can it be that they don't tip over and fall over if they have a shallow root system? It's because the root systems of redwood trees are not deep in and of themselves. They are shallow and they intertwine with all of the other root systems of all of the other trees. So the strength of all of the other trees strengthen the individual tree and the strength of the individual tree strengthens all the rest of the trees. We have been made for fellowship. We have been created to be part of a body of Christ and to be part of a fellowship of believers. We have been created to be part of the church. If that's the case, why is Jesus praying for our unity? It's because Jesus has foreknowledge and he knew that one day we would have to make a decision about the color of the carpet. And he knew that we in our sinfulness weren't going to be able to get along. And we knew that there'd be people that'd be selfish. We, he knew there'd be people that would get distracted by personal things. We knew, he knew there'd be people that weren't quite living as they ought to live. And so he's giving us a calling. He's giving us a command that we are to be unified. 
I was asked this last week. I had a visit with a family. I was inviting them to become a member of our church and uh, asked some very legitimate questions. One of the questions they asked was, all right, if I'm a member of your church, do I have to agree with everything that you say and believe? I was offended by that. As if there's anything that I say and believe that is not right. And I said, listen, you do not have to believe and agree with every single thing that I say or do. Uh, we are not a cult. We are a church. You, you got to agree with Jesus, right? Not with James. I encourage you as our members and listeners, you watching on TV, I encourage you to have your Bible with you to make sure that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I encourage you to go home and talk about it and read it and study it on your own. Because if I get off on a tangent that is not biblical, then I have a problem. And I, I can do that because I'm a human. I'm a, sin, a sinner. And so I encourage it. But, but here are some things. There are some things that you've got to believe in order to have fellowship with our church. If you don't believe these, you're not going to have fellowship with our church. I told them, like, for instance, Jesus is God's son. He died on the cross for our sins. He was raised on the third day. He ascended to heaven. He's at the right hand of God. He's coming back one day. You got to believe that to be in fellowship with this church body. You, you got to believe the Bible is true to be in fellowship with his body. So there are some things. How, you don't have to necessarily agree with the dress code. You don't have to necessarily agree with when times are. Uh, you don't have to agree with a number of those things. There are a lot of things. There are gray areas. Uh, but I will tell you this. You can disagree in an agreeable way. You are not called to be lockstep every little thing. However, when there is a disagreement, you are called to love one another and disagree in an agreeable way. You are called to maintain unity in the midst of diversity. And so we have here this idea of maintaining this unity in the midst of that diversity because he has called us to do so. In order for us to stand firm individually and as a church, we need a fellowship of believers and we must be unified in that fellowship. Let me give you a second thing. Not only do we have a calling that unifies, but we have a commonality that unifies. A commonality that unifies. Look back in verse 21. He says there, may they all be one as you, Father, in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. Well, how does that work? Look there in verse 23. Look down in verse 23. I am in them and you are in me. What he's saying here is this idea of we're in each other. He's talking about we are connected. We are in line with one another. We're synergized with one another. We are in me. Remember uh, John 15, I am the branch. I'm the vine. You are the branches. You are in me. You are connected to me. You are engaged with me. You're in that sphere of influence. Those who have given their life to Christ, it says that we are in him, that he is in us. The Holy Spirit of God dwells you, is literally in you. And so he's saying that you are in me and I am in you. You see, there is a commonality that we have. Believers can be tall. They can be short. They can be smart. They can be not so smart. They can be LSU fans. They can be other school fans. 
They can be from Louisiana. They can be from Texas. They can be, I mean, it's a whole diversity. You can go, everybody, everybody is totally different, but we have one thing in common, and that is Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter where you're from. I've been on the mission field before. And you go on the mission field, and uh, here it's like, well, they're Methodists, they're Presbyterians, they're Episcopalians, they're this, they're that. We don't really want to talk to them. You go on the mission field, you're behind enemy lines. There are not a whole lot of Christians there. Look, if you name the name of Jesus and you believe in Jesus and you're trusting in Jesus, you're a friend of mine, baby, because we have that in common. We may worship differently, maybe at different places, but we have Jesus in common. It is the thing that we all have in common. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 and 13. For just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many are one body, so also is Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. It is the spirit of God, Jesus himself, that indwells us and gives us the unifying factor. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. Listen carefully. He's going to talk about our unity here. Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. We have something that unifies us, and that thing that unifies us is Jesus. Now, why would Jesus need to pray about this and remind us about this fact? Because the, re- the reality is, regardless of how you feel, objectively, if someone gives their life to Jesus, they are in Jesus, and Jesus is in them. Objectively, that is true. However, subjectively, sometimes we don't live like it. The reason he is praying for this is not to make it objectively true. The reason he is praying this is because in our sin, we don't act like it. Because if we acted like we were all on the same team, our our interaction with one another would be a little bit different. If we acted like we were all connected with Christ, it'd be a little bit, you wouldn't have church fights and church splits. If we all were unified and rallied around Jesus, my friends, he wouldn't need to pray this. But because we don't always subjectively act the way that objectively is true, we have a problem. We are unified in Christ. It's time that we act like it. The third thing we have is a cause that unifies. A cause that unifies. He makes this statement twice, and he adds a little bit the second time he says it. But look at in verse 21 again. He says, may they be one as you and I are, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. Then look down in verse 23. I am in them, and you are in me, so that they may be completely one, that the world may know you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. 
He's saying the reason I want them to be unified is so that once unified, the world, referring to lost people, they will look at the testimony of the loving, unified fellowship of believers and will recognize that they are connected to Jesus. Recognize that he loves them and recognize their message. Now, how does he do that? Well, look there in, uh, in that text again, in verse 22, I skipped over. He says, I have given them the glory you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. Now, it is very evident from this passage that the glory that is given is given to help the believers in their unity. He says, I'm going to give them that glory so that they may be one. I've given that glory so that, verse 23, they may be completely one, which means we're growing in this unity. And it's the favor of God that allows that and encourages that. Not not favor, but the glory. Now, what is this idea of glory? It's used a couple ways in John. The idea of glory is someone's reputation. It's the idea of magnifying and elevating that reputation. You score a touchdown, you glory in that, you get glorified in that. Man, you're a great football player and your reputation increases, right? That's what's happening. Jesus talks about glorify me. And he's talking about his death on the cross. He's talking about his eventual glorification in heaven. He's talking about glorifying God, elevating him in glory. We see also glory to talk about the majesty and the awesomeness of Jesus. But we also have this idea of glory being the mission on which Jesus was sent. The glory that Jesus had was the call of God to go to the cross. Think about it. Why do we worship Jesus? Is it not because he went to the cross for us? The glory that he received from God the Father, he says, he is now extending to the church. He is extending to believers. And what is that glory? Is it his majesty? Yeah, one day. Uh, Is it the elevation of honor for us? Maybe so. But what it is, is it's the call and the mission that he has laid on our life. You couple that with this idea of letting the world see us and know that Jesus was sent from the Father. That's another way of saying that they might be saved. Here's the deal. The cause that he has given us is to bring people to faith in Christ. It is our unity in the fellowship of Christ that gives us the testimony that backs up what we're saying. If we are not unified, who wants to be a part of this? How many of you want to go to a church where all they do is fight and bicker all the time? None of you want to be there. None of you want to do that. Listen to what John chapter 13 verse 34 35 says. I give you a new command, love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What is the mark of a genuine disciple? That they love one another and they're unified in that love. If someone claims Jesus but does not love one another, maybe they ought not be claiming Jesus. And so we have this cause. A platoon in the military, we got some military people in here. A platoon in the military, smallest unit that you have in the military. And in that platoon, uh, it does not matter. There are multiple ethnicities in a platoon. There are multiple religious backgrounds in a platoon. There are multiple socioeconomic backgrounds in a platoon. There are maybe multiple languages spoken in a platoon. But you know what? That platoon is unified. They may never hang out with one another socially, 
but they are unified and they are rallied around what? The mission. The mission. We may not get along outside of this, but because of that mission, we're going to get along because we need to accomplish the mission that has been given to us. Uh, I made fun of being from Texas because Texans herald a battle, and it is really our battle cry when we get into something. And I had some from, someone from Louisiana say, well, that's cute. Did y'all do that? He said, we, we have a battle too. He said, y'all's battle was the defeat at the Alamo, but ours is the victory in New Orleans. Well, the Alamo, if you don't know the story, it's in San Antonio. And the Alamo was a mission in San Antonio. And they gathered around it, became a fortress. That's where the fight was. And here's the, the, the moral of the story. The Alamo started as a church became a battlefield, and now it's a museum. There are plenty of churches around us that at one point in time were doing a great job reaching people for Christ. They had their eye on the mission. They started as a church, but somewhere along the way, they got sideways, they became a battlefield, and now they are a museum. There's nobody there. Why? Because it is our unity around the calling it's our unity around that commonality and it's the unity around the cause of christ to take the gospel to the world that is what unifies us brings a fellowship and makes us attractive to other people no one wants to go to a church where there is fighting no one wants to go to a church where there's arguing and bickering nobody wants to be a part of that we have enough drama in our life we don't need to add that to it i will tell you this from my experience as a pastor, I'm going to, see, I'm going to say very rarely, because I can't say never, but I can't remember one. Very rarely is there someone whose prioritize is, priority is winning people to Christ that cause problems in a church I serve. Let me say it again. Very rarely, if ever, has anyone whose priority was bringing people to Christ caused a problem in a church I serve. Nobody from the visitation team causes problems. Do you know who the ones that cause the issues are? I'm not going to name them, but just say the opposite of what I just said, all right? Statement I heard young in ministry, and I'm going to repeat it again, and I'm sorry, but it just stuck with me. When a church stops focusing on evangelism, it will resort to cannibalism. And as long as we keep our eyes on the cause, keep our eyes on the mission, it's what will unify us. You have been given a great gift. You gave your life to Christ. You've been given a family to help you grow. That family is the local body of believers, the church. When God brought people to Christ, he caused them a babe, a baby, spiritual baby. And he made you as a follower of Christ to need fellowship with other believers in the context of the local church. There is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. Not one that's growing and doing anything for the kingdom. 
All believers are intended to grow and develop, mature, and serve in the context of the local body of believers, the church. And that local body of believers must be healthy and must be unified in pulling in the same direction. I thank God for First Baptist Church of Lafayette. This church, regardless of who the pastor has been, regardless of who the staff members have been, regardless of who's been in leadership over the years, this church has always kept its eyes on the call of God to reach the world for Christ. And we don't have major schisms in our history. We don't have major church splits. We don't have major church fights. They might have been disagreeable. There might have been some tight votes. But over time, because we've kept our eyes on Jesus and on his mission, God has protected this church, and I thank God for it. And we're a church right now that's unified. The long-range plan that we presented had a 100% vote. That doesn't happen in a Baptist church, if you didn't know that. 100% vote. This is a unified church that loves Jesus and wants to see people saved. This is a church that is an incubator to help people grow and develop and become closer followers of Christ. This is a church that if you're not part of it, you need to be part of it. There are many in here that uh, have never officially become a member of our church. Uh, You have enjoyed the music and the preaching and the ministries of the church, but you've never really plugged in. You've never joined the church. Now, let me say, many people I come across think that they have joined the church. There is a piece of paper that you fill out to join a Sunday school class. That's becoming a member of Sunday school. There is another piece of paper that you fill out to join the church. If you have not filled that piece of paper out, guess what? You are not a member of the church. You say, there are a lot of folks that come. We, we had a guy at my last church that had been attending for five years and never joined the church. We said, it's about time for you to join the church. And he said, well, we've been praying about it and thinking about it, but man, I don't really want to give up my guest parking spot. <laughs> it says first-time guests there on it, all right? First-time guest. If you're a second-time guest, you ought to know where you're going. Park somewhere else, right? But in all seriousness, you objectively, as a believer, are called to plug into a local body of believers. If you are a long-time guest and you have determined that this is not the church that God wants you to be a part of and be a member of, There is a church out there that God wants you to be a member of, and as long as you are playing church here, you are hurting that other church. Does that make sense to you? I'm saying that with all kind of love, right? So it does not help you, it doesn't help this church, and it doesn't help that church, and it doesn't help the kingdom of God for you to keep playing church here. It's time for you to find your church home. And if this isn't it, we love you. We're glad that you're here. You're welcome here. But do not let us get in the way of what God is doing in your life. You need to find that church home. And I will tell you, if God's got you coming that long and you're a longtime guest here, it probably is that God wants you to be a member here. And I don't know why you hadn't plugged in yet.
If God's calling you to join, in a minute, here's what we're going to do. In a minute, we're going to stand up, have our time of invitation, a song of invitation. Not quite yet, but here in a minute. And we'll have some leaders here at the front. It'll be staff members. It'll be deacons. It'll be their wives. There'll be a few other folks up here. And their job is to help you take next steps. And so if you are ready to join our church, you've been praying about that, uh, talk to your spouse, say, hey, let's go. What I'm going to ask you to do, we're going to stand and sing. I'm going to ask you to step out from where you are, come grab one of them by the hand and say, you don't have to grab him by the hand. Just come up here and talk to him and say, I'm, we're ready to join this church. And we will help you do that. We will make, let you sign a card, all right? But we'll help you do that and talk with you about that. You say, well, can I do it in private? I'm a little bit nervous. We can figure out a way to do that. But I will tell you, we encourage people to come forward because when people come forward, the rest of the church sees them come forward. They rejoice with them. They are encouraged. And it gives them a reason to glorify God. And you give God glory. When you say, I'm just going to keep it private, you take away the opportunity for the church to be encouraged and for God to get more glory. I don't think you want to do that. So I would encourage you to step up from where you are and come grab one of them at the end of the invitation. You can do this at the end of any invitation, but today in particular, since we talked about it. There's another group out there. We are called to engage in this unity. You do not do that passively. You do it actively. You do not engage in unity by merely consuming a product, but by producing a product. And so at some point, some of you who are members of our church, you're genuine believers, you're going to have to switch a gear from a consumer to a producer. And what does that look like? Well, that looks like you investing in the lives of other people. And you may say, I don't feel like I need someone else to pray for me. I don't feel like I need someone else to help me along. I feel pretty good and comfortable in that. Okay, great. I don't think you're right. I believe you're wrong about that because the Bible says you're wrong about that. But let's just say for a minute, for the sake of argument, that you're good and you don't need somebody else. That does not mean that there's not somebody else out there that needs you. There's somebody struggling today that God has done something in your life where you can invest in them and help them. And when you're not engaging what you're doing is you're not maintaining the unity and the fellowship and you're not encouraging other people to grow. How do we do that here? Well, we don't do that in big church. Y'all know what big church is? You are in big church right now, all right? This big church. So we don't do that in big church. Where do we do that? We do that in Sunday school. It is in Sunday school where we invest in the lives of others. And there are many. I've got a list. There are like 500 plus people on this list who are active members of our church but are not enrolled and engaged in Sunday school. There's a bunch of you out there. How much are we missing because you're not engaged? And how much greater would this church be if you would switch gears and engage in ministry? So some of you, it's time to join a Sunday school class. And so on that Connect card that we have, Check a box. Help me enroll in Sunday school. We will help you do that. Be glad to do so. There are many in here who are actively, I don't know who you are. I'm assuming this is true. <laughs> but there could be some people in here who are actively undermining the unity of First Baptist Lafayette. If Jesus had a chance to pray for you, and his prayer focused on unity, 
do you think unity was important to Jesus? If someone is intentionally undermining the thing that is important to Jesus, what do you think Jesus might end up doing with that person? I don't know. I don't want to find out. But if that's you and the Lord has pointed that out, then you need to spend time in confession and repentance and laying that before him. There's someone here, you've never given your life to Christ. You are missing out on the greatest thing, salvation and the greatest unity, the unity of God's church. And I would encourage you in a moment when they stand, if you've never given your life to Christ and you feel like you want to know more about that, there will be spiritual leaders here at the front. You can come, visit one of them, and they will help you take those next steps. We want to invite you to do that. Would you bow your heads and hearts with me for a moment? One of the greatest ways that we invest in one another and in fellowship and in unity is by praying over and praying for one another. In a minute, we're going to sing. The spiritual leaders will be here. And if you need to be prayed over, I invite you to step out from where you are and come let one of them pray for you. If you need to make a decision, you come. need to join our church, you come. Talk to one of these. I'm going to pray over us. We're going to stand and sing, and you're going to come. Father, we thank you for the day. I pray for those who need to respond to you. Draw them to yourself today. Move in their heart. Convince them of their need. And I pray that we would have the boldness to respond to you right now. Lord, we glorify you. We give you honor. And we worship you. And we lift this time up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.